Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian Church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. We are finally here, uh, our long-awaited fourth and final installment of the Theologian Symposium series, which uh, James, Charlie, and myself have been doing, I guess since, what, it was March or something, our first steps might even been earlier than that. But we've been going through a list of theologians who have had a uh, influence on us, um, who we've been personally moved by, who played a part in our uh, theological study or journey, really, spiritual journey, um, who've uh, just, we wanted to, I guess, pay honor to. And so we've taken the last of this series, this is the fourth one. Uh, so far through the list, um, James has had Martin Luther, then he had Bogirts, or Bogirts. I know there's different ways you pronunciate that. Um, then he had C.S. Lewis, then he had Michael Horton. I know it's not the exact order, but he had those four. Uh, Charlie had uh, James Veltz, uh, Keith, remind me of Keith's last name. Wasn't I'm there? not even remembering. <laughs> and then there was Johann Gerhard. He's only done three. I apologize. You no, know, um, Norman Nagel was in there. Norman Nagel, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Norman Nagel, um, which was a very moving the way you recounted uh just your student experience of having having him as a teacher. That was one of my, really, honestly, my favorite parts of this series we've done. But yeah, Charlie's only done three, so he's actually going to do two. This is the way it worked out. He'll be doing two today. James will be doing one, and I'll be doing one. So uh, how you how you guys doing? Well, I know how James is doing. We, <laughs> we had a pre-show convo. <laughs> so, and Charlie, how are you? I'm doing well. I had a cold last week, and I'm I'm still fighting allergies a bit, but I'm feeling a lot better than I did a week ago. Good, good. Um, good. I'm, I'm uh, feeling good too. We wrapped up a school year. 
I got all my grading in of like the 90 high school kids I teach and all the other cleaned the room, labeled everything when they people come through and do a deep clean of the school during the summer and there's masking tape over everything that says room 217 so they know where to put it back. So all that good end of the school year stuff. Uh, it's been a good experience. I'm glad it's summer. Uh, so um, if y'all want to start, um, we'll go ahead. I don't know who wants to go first. I think um, I went first, first the last time, so don't, I don't need to go first now, but it's up to y'all. Since I've got two, I could, I could start out. Okay. Well, well, why don't you bookend it? You can do one and then we can close with your other one. Okay. Sounds good. Well, my, um, my first guy is um, Kurt Marquardt. Um, he was a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary where I attended until um, the fall of 2006 when he uh, died of ALS about three weeks into the quarter. Um, I was actually in one of the classes he was teaching when he died. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I didn't know him well, but he, I, I feel like he had a huge impact on me and, and, and still does. So he was actually Estonian. He was born in uh, Estonia in 1934. And then um, they went to Vienna and then he was in a refugee camp in 1941 and eventually was able to um, get to uh, the United States after the war. Uh, and he was a pastor in Australia for a little while. And uh, then uh, later in the 70s, he, he came back to the United States and taught um, for most of his life at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. Um, his main area was systematics, uh, but he also was one of the first Missouri Synod theologians who had a strong interest in apologetics. And so he, he did a lot of work in apologetics also. And uh, the way that I met him was probably a little different than most of his students met him. Uh, there's a church in Fort Wayne, uh, Redeemer Lutheran Church down on Rudisill Avenue, kind of a bad part of town. And I had a few friends that would go to services there on Thursday nights. They had a, a very uh, short kind of low church um, divine service on Thursday nights where the sermon would be, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes and there was one hymn and no chanting. And so I, I, was go, I would go to these services and it was usually only five or six of us there. And there was this old guy that would always be sitting over by himself and uh, was quiet. He'd come for the service and then usually leave right after. And it struck me after a while that I saw him on campus a lot. And I finally figured out who he was. But uh, Professor Marquardt was so not about himself that you know, he just didn't make a big deal about whatever he was doing or where he was doing it. But the other thing that struck me about, about him at those, um, at those uh, Thursday night services is sometimes he would be wearing a, a FUBU shirt, 
And, you know, it's not very often you see an Estonian white guy wearing a FUBU shirt. And uh, I finally learned what the story was behind that. He had been carjacked in Indianapolis and he had gone to trial to try to get the judge to um, not throw the book at the kid who robbed him. And the judge did anyway. And he visited this kid in prison the entire time he was in prison. And he bought Professor Marquardt this shirt as a gift after he got out. And this is, of course, a story that Professor Marquardt never told um, because nothing was about him ever. Um, he, he, what I learned from him is, you know, how you could be one of the, you know, leading scholars in your field in a church body and not have an ego. Uh, he, he just, he was a pastor who happened to teach at a seminary and he just wanted to listen to the word of God and hear it and um, receive the gifts along with the rest of us. And uh, <clears throat> after he died, my uh, fourth year class was trying to figure out what our class gift to the seminary was going to be. It was a tradition that the fourth year class would do something. And what we actually chose to do is start a theological education fund in his name with his uh, kids' permission, uh, which would train pastors in Haiti. Hmm. And uh, it's still going. Um, it's had a lot of changes in the last uh, 15 years, but the Kurt Marquardt Fund uh, for Theological Education still exists and uh, is still helping educate pastors in Haiti. Um, and this is something that he would, had been involved in before he, he died. He would go to Haiti uh, for weeks at a time and uh, teach whoever came uh, so that they could have uh, Lutheran pastors in Haiti. And, um, and we had kind of got, gotten the impression that he was one of the only people who did that. And so when he died, we wanted to figure out some way to enable that kind of work to continue. Um, initially, we just bought him a bunch of books. We'd find French translations of, of Lutheran stuff and get it down there. But uh, it, 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 uh, it's more than it was when we started at this point. Wow. Um, I, well, James, have you read or heard of Kurt Markhart? I have not. Uh, I just had to look him up as Charlie was talking. Um, he sounds similar, uh, at least in terms of his field, um, to uh, John Warwick Montgomery, who's also a Missouri Synod guy and is also big in apologetics. They were friends. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Montgomery is still alive and still working. Um, and uh, um, so one, one piece of the story is that when, when Professor Marquardt was in, was a parish pastor in Toowoomba, Australia, uh, back in the States, there was a, it's sometimes called the battle for the Bible was going on at the LCMS Seminary in St. Louis, and um, John Warwick Montgomery was one of the 
the leading um, theologians who was trying to bring the Missouri Synod back to biblical orthodoxy. And uh, when, um, I can't remember if he wrote this book when he came back to the States or when he was still in Australia, but Professor Marquardt kind of wrote the first um, book that analyzed everything that had led up to the controversy in St. Louis in the 70s. Mm -hmm. It was a book called Anatomy of an Explosion. Um, you can actually check it out on archive.org. Um, yeah. It's a pretty a... easy read, but, um, but Professor Marquardt was, uh, he was the one who wrote the, the first kind of history of everything that happened in the, and the reason why he was asked to do it is because when everything went down, he wasn't here. And so the feeling was that, that he could be more objective hmm. than, than some, somebody who was actually here. And, uh, um, and I think that was, that they were probably right about that. Um, but it, his temperament also, um, you know, suited it, suited that kind of task. But yeah, he and he and Montgomery, um, they were comrades at arms, you might say. Yeah, I remember uh, my grandparents, uh, pastor of their church for like, I think he was there for twenty eight years. Um, it's a long time that he served as a parish pastor. Uh, he he was at Concordia during Seminex, but he actually is one of the students, one of the minority of students who stayed. Um, he and for some reason I thought Mark Hart was a professor there, and he's one of the faculty who stayed. But I guess I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, yeah. he was in he was in Australia at the time mm. um, at the time that the walkout happened. Uh, my predecessor in my current <clears throat> parishes was also one of the students who stayed. Well, uh, yeah, this, this pastor, he, so he said, I think I, I had a conversation once with him because I kind of, I, I, and for heads up, Charlie and I want to do a Seminex episode, but it's, it, it'll be for, it won't be like anytime too soon, but <laughs> uh, it's an interesting time and in not just Lutheran history, but North American Christianity, you could say, but uh, anyways, he, he was one of those students who stayed, but yeah, he said, um, yeah, Kurt Markhart was one of the very forthright theologians, and <laughs> that's what he said. He said forthright. Um, he was forthright, but kind. But kind, yeah. Yeah, he didn't, um, he called a thing what it was, but he tried to do it with love. Well, that book, Anatomy of Explosion, um, I read that back when I first heard about Seminex. I was first, I was a year one in seminary and I found out about Seminex just through our library they had, they had books on it I was curious about it because I was raised Missouri Synod but at the time my impression of Mark Hart was not good but I think that was because I was at a very different place theologically then and he kind of just came off as like right-wingy and mean um, but I do remember and I was digging off my bookshelf because uh, I used to subscribe to Concordia Theological Quarterly, and, I, and that's why that's why you. Saw, I mean, our listeners can't see because it's audio, but I got up and 
James and Charlie were looking at an empty chair for a little bit, but I was, I was digging through the Concordia, my old issues, and I thought I had an issue that um, Markar wrote an article in that I thought was really well done. And I, but um, of the two issues I have on my shelf, I have, I got rid of some of them. It must've been on, on the one I got rid of or one that's not on my shelf, but you wrote, it, it was, it was a, the first time, it was the next time I had countered Markar after reading Anatomy and Explosion. And I realized how much I underestimated him because um, he did a really good, I guess, not analysis, but just an overview of like the past 30 years of like how inter interpretations of justification and he even got a little bit into the new perspective on Paul, again, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of gave a good solid overview of it and what from a, you know, from his position of confessional, what a confessional Lutheran could say about it. And um, I thought it was, you know, I enjoyed it a lot. And I guess I just, it's just not in any of the issues that I pulled off my shelf, but. Um, Most of what he wrote, it was in Concordia Theological Quarterly. And if you go to the website, media.ctsfw.edu mm -hmm. and put in his last name, Mark Quart, M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-T. Um, you'll find everything that he ever wrote for, um, for CTQ there mm -hmm. and for free download. Um, but he, he published a lot. Um, he, he, he was writing constantly. They have a big bust of him in the library at Fort Wayne, too, um, that I remember seeing when I um, visited there and checked out their library once. Uh, yeah, so I'll have to read more of him. Um, again, my first impression of him, but I was at a very different place in my life. And, um, you know, and uh, it was before I became a Reformation Anglican. Um, and before I could really uh, truly appreciate the confessional Lutheran standpoint as that's related to being a, um, as there's a lot of connections there between that and Reformation Anglicans. So um, yeah, now I'm gonna go on see uh, Concordia's media site and dig through some of his articles. I'll just mention one <laughs> other thing. Um, probably his longest and most uh, detailed theological work is called The Church, and it's in the uh, Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series, and it's his uh, scholarly treatment of ecclesiology. And that's probably his most major theological work. Mm -hmm. So, uh, James, I, uh, I didn't mean to, like, not let you say how you were doing. Uh, <laughs> how else are you doing? I'm good. Um, we've got our infant at home and she's doing well and um, growing like a weed, um, sleeping somewhat well, although Rachel might contest that claim. Um, but we're, we're doing well, come out of Easter, uh, Easter day and, and we're in well into Easter season and things are going well there um, at church. So yeah, can't complain. Good. Good. Well, um, anything else on Markhart, Charlie? 
No, I think I think I've covered the bases. Okay. Um, let's have uh, James. You can go, or do you want me to go? Sure, I'll go. Okay. <clears throat> that way we can uh, we can because I know my 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 guy's kind of controversial. That way I, I know that we can um, we can cut the conversation off if need be, so that we can continue on. Well, this and the last guy will be is an interesting combination already, but I'll let you introduce him. So. <laughs> fair enough fair enough so um my fifth and final theologian that has been influential for me is gerhard ferdy gerhard ferdy uh, was born in 1927 died in 2005 was an american lutheran pastor and then when the elca joined together what was it 1988 or something like that um, the American Lutherans were one of the bodies that formed the ELCA. He's, he was a theologian, Harvard-educated. Um, he has a doctorate in, in theology from Harvard and is a Luther scholar. He taught at a number of different institutions, but finished his time as a professor at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Some of the other names that are associated with him as perhaps um, disciples would be people like Jim Nestigan, um, Mark Mattis, um, and a few others uh, uh, who have slipped my mind. But he is a somewhat controversial figure in American Lutheranism, um, as Charlie and I were talking about before we began recording. Uh, there, uh, his, his uh, atonement theology is contested. Um, folks are particularly um, frustrated. Uh, some folks are particularly frustrated with the way that he views, um, views the atonement. I'll be interested to hear how Charlie approaches that here in a minute. Particularly, uh, his reading of Luther is... Um, is something that also can be a bit uh, frustrating for folks who disagree with him. Um, he's adamant that that Luther was not uh, that Luther did not believe in a third use of the law. Um, that's a little inside Lutheran baseball here, but but first use of the law is the civil use that it curbs um, violent acts of sin. It, it is uh, used in civil government for that purpose. The second use of the law is the primary use, that it is the theological use of the law, that the law convicts us, it functions as a mirror to show us our sinfulness and to drive us to our need for a savior. The third use of the law is that the law is a guide, and that is the law is a guide for Christian living and the way that we um, interact in the world. Um, Ferdy would say that uh, the third use of the law is not appropriate because Ferdy understands Luther's scheme of salvation to have no place in it whatsoever for anything merit-based or anything that can even approach merit. So he takes offense at or, or, or um, does a rhetorical takedown of in, um, in his book that I just finished reading, it's fantastic, Where God Meets Man. Um, he does a rhetorical takedown of Anselm and his uh, atonement theology, the satis satisfaction theory of atonement, 
because the idea uh, is that when Christ died on the cross to satisfy God, there is a kind of buildup of merit that can then be dispensed by the church as it eventually is, um, is viewed in the Middle Ages, which is one of the things that Luther was adamantly opposed to. His operative theology of atonement is Christus Victor. He believes, um, as other people like Gustav Allen, a Swedish bishop um, in the early 20th century and theologian, he believes that the operative metaphor, the operative theology of the atonement in scripture is that Christ conquers the powers of sin, death, and the devil. And this is particularly um, apropos of, uh, or it's particularly apropos when speaking about Luther's theology. All you have to do is, you know, listen to Luther's hymnody. A mighty fortress is our God is a particularly good example of this. Um, the, the cosmic nature of the atonement or the cosmic nature of what Christ has done. Um, um, what Ferdy would say about the law is that Christ fulfilled the law and not, not in a meritorious way, but that the law required death and he died the death that the law required. And as such, he fulfilled the law, as he says in Matthew chapter five. Um, and he is the goal of the law the telos of the law, the end of the law, um, because the law has always and al has always pointed to Christ and always will point to Christ, will always point to his redeeming work because that's the gospel. So Ferdy, and, and perhaps, and, and I, I'm not as privy to the, the, the Lutheran conflict with Ferdy, Charlie, so I'll invite you into this in just a second, but Ferdy um, doesn't even attribute merit to Christ because he believes that when you, when you even say that Christ is meriting something, then you're saying that God is owed something that, um, that, that eventually still arrives at the conclusion that the law can make righteous and the law is never able to make righteous. It's only ever able to accuse so would you say that's a, a fair assessment of where um, LCMS folks disagree with Ferdy or, or dislike Ferdy, Charlie? It, it's part of it. Um, okay. So, I mean, on the atonement, um, the problem that I would have with Ferdy is that he begins, um, he begins with philosophy and then goes to theology. So... You know, he says, well, you know, merit can't really have any place with it or in, in atonement. So we can't really think of atonement this way. And so he's, he's kind of uh, setting up his parameters in a more philosophical way than he is a theological way. And, and the, the other objection would be that he, he loves to use the phrase theories of atonement as if uh, the atonement is, is a thing about which one can have a theory. And so the scriptures provide us with various theories of atonement. Uh, whereas I would simply say, uh, ransom is not a theory of atonement. Um, penal substitution is not a theory of atonement. Justification is not a theory of atonement. None of these are 
theories or metaphors. They are simply what the atonement is, uh, because the scriptures don't treat them as, as analogies or, or metaphors. They simply say, this is what Christ's death did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, <clears throat> my primary objection to the way that he views atonement is that he, he has the scriptures here, and then he has this philosophical, theological boundary around them, and then he goes at them through that, and it ends up with him having a conflict between his philosophical approach and and what the scriptures actually say. Um, and and uh, I, I just don't find it to be helpful or necessary. But that that's actually my, not my primary problem with him. <laughs> sure. But that, that's the, I mean, that, that's, that's the concerns I would have with his atonement theology. Okay. Well, I'll say a little bit more. And then if there's further, uh, if Charlie wants to reveal uh, his his primary problem, we'll get to that in a second, I guess. So, Ferdy is heavily influenced by the work of Luther. Um, he is particularly interested in Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. He's particularly interested in the freedom of a Christian, although he doesn't talk about the freedom of a Christian. That um, that disputation or that that uh, um, that essay. Uh, as overtly, he's obviously digested it because what he talks about frequently is that being saved by grace through faith, we are free now not to do whatever we want, but our freedom is always for our neighbor. Um, we're free from having to save ourselves, which would be exactly what Luther would say, but our freedom is always for uh, the good of our neighbor. And of course, the bondage of the will. Um, Another work of his that I'm reading currently is The Captivation of the Will, um, which uh, is a tiny little book. Um, but each one of his books is really addressing something particular in Luther. Um, so he has uh, his, his work that if you've heard of Gerhard Ferdi, you've probably heard of one of two books. Um, his either on, a being, on Being a Theologian of the Cross, which is his interpretation of the Heidelberg Disputation, or um, Theology as for Proclamation, which is his, um, his perspective on preaching and the importance of preaching theology. Um, the Theologian of the Cross, Theologian of Glory um, dichotomy, uh, that's pretty big for him. It's something that um, pervades all of his work. Um, and he believed that it pervaded all of Luther's work as well. Theologian of the Cross is someone who believes um, in the saving work of Christ and that we are justified by grace through faith alone. A theologian of glory is someone, at least in Ferdy's rendering, who believes that um, we can contribute to our salvation in one way or another. Um, or that salvation is somehow merit-based in any way, shape, or form. Um, and that goes, I'm sorry to interrupt, James, but that, that goes even deeper than just, I mean, you gave a good definition, but it even goes deeper into like a basic outlook. Uh, Christians that are, that are, that really follow a theology of glory, just, just it's almost like 
is a whole different religion from a Christian who follows a theology of the cross. And, and these seem like such um, abstract terminologies to likely to a lot of ordinary Christians. Um, but I think, uh, you know, with a little bit of explanation, we all, we all can definitely relate to what each one speaks to. And I think I have fallen, um, I have noticed where I've become like a, where I've, I've been susceptible, I think we've all been susceptible to a theology of glory, which basically treats um, Christ's work as a good thing, um, perhaps one of several good things, perhaps a, a necessary step in our ascent to um, in, into growing in our faith and becoming good Christians, as if I guess the theology of glory sees the the life of a Christian as a as a constant improvement. It's I a guess. ladder. So so Ferdy talks ladder. about ladder theology, mm -hmm. and it's the idea theology of so so everyone every Christian is at one point or another going to be a theologian of glory because mm -hmm. the old Adam is a theologian of glory. The idea that. I want what God is going to give me, but I want to earn it. Mm -hmm. That is a theology of glory. Right. And also that you want to impress God, right? Right. And that's why you feel, you feel like these obligations to do things, even like to, especially to do like great things that will really impress God and also others and show the world that you really get it and that you take your faith seriously. I guess that's kind of the, the, the very practical way of uh, manifestation of where I think, where I see it, of, yeah. of how the theology of glory so much manifests itself. And that's opposed to theology of the cross, which is not, not concerned. It's almost like you totally die to yourself in the theology of the cross. Mm -hmm. You're not interested in doing something great and glorious, um, for others to see because you have absolutely no interest in yourself you're you have full interest in jesus mm -hmm. your eyes are, are are looking to him your eyes are looking to the cross so to speak right um because you realize your utter need for him right um you know that's another way of putting it. i mean there's so many ways you could put this but i and again i i you know listeners can go back and read the heidelberg disputation between luther and uh, oh gosh, who is he debating on that? Was that Eck? I, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it's before the, or it's shortly after the 95 theses. I think it was just a, 15, 18. like a faculty debate. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was. I don't know that he even, I don't know that he was even able to debate it because he published the theses of the disputation right. and it ended up exploding. <laughs> Right. It was so. Is in 1519. Yeah, I'm, 15, I'm remembering. And it's yeah. It's I, I think work. that it was just written for a for an intra faculty. Yeah. Thing, you mm -hmm. know. So it wasn't. It wasn't some big production like the Diet of Worms or anything right. like that. Right. 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 But it was like 95 Thesis, another written thing that was put into circulation. And I would argue, um, maybe I'm a Ferdian. I don't know. The Heidelberg Disputation is much more the start of the reformation than the 95 thesis are oh yes just because i think it, it captures luther's central points while the 95 thesis are him it's it's just a 
a list of grievances, understandable grievances, most of them, um, against like abuses in the church that anyone with a right mind would recognize. Right. He's definitely closer to being a Lutheran in 1519 than he was in 1517. That's for sure. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the last thing I'll say uh, before Charlie seeks to dismantle everything I've said before is I've got <laughs> I've got some book recommendations so uh, our our listenership can um, can adjudicate this with their own minds. Um, where God meets man. Um, it is his uh, book that, as I was just saying, I just read, it's, he, he reads Luther in a very down-to-earth way, that, that God is not aloof, but imminent, and of course, that's pretty clear for Luther. The sacraments, very clear example of God's imminence for us in the promises of baptism and the Eucharist. Uh, the Captivation of the Will, which is Ferdy's take on the debate between Luther and Erasmus that... Um, ended up producing the bondage of the will. And then two that I've started but have not finished are On Being a Theologian of the Cross, which is his book about the Heidelberg Disputation, and Theology is Formation, as I mentioned, is his book about preaching. So. Yeah. Can I add, um, I mean, Charlie can do his dismantling. I don't think he has a full. I'm not going to dismantle. I don't think he has a full like. Intent what I, what, what, my objection is something that you didn't even mention. So, I mean, I can say what it is or not. It doesn't I, I do want to. Can I add before? And I, the reason why I, I recently read or reread Captivation of the Well, which was one of the books that uh, James recommended um, when he told me he was going to do Ferdy. Yeah, our listener, our listeners, we're not surprised by our our host. We, we all we talk about what we're going to do beforehand, but uh, so, um, but yeah, I reread Captivation of the Will, and um, which is basically it's like an exegesis, it's like a commentary Ferdy wrote on the debate Luther and Erasmus famously had uh, that led to Luther's writing of the Bondage of the Will, which basically they 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 debated over the topic of free will um and if there is such a thing really as free will or not and um it had to do of course with topics of and also by that by virtue of that touches on monergism versus synergism or you know for our listeners who may not know what that means basically just how much does our human agency have to do with our salvation and sanctification and christian life but what i liked so much about that writing um well first off ferdy writes like he like he's like charlie said in our pre-show discussion like he's arguing with you at a bar or also kind of like he's preaching it's not just like strict academic prose it's it's really like it's 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 a type of writing that's actually very accessible but in this commentary in bondage to the will um he he touches on basically um, how Erasmus and Luther come to scripture in two fundamentally different ways. And it's, it's almost like, kind of like how you're either a Christian of glory or Christian of the cross, or kind of like how someone is either a theologian of the cross or a theologian of glory. I guess you could say, Ferdy didn't say this, but my take is that a lot of Christians, you're either Erasmian or Lutheran, as in Luther-esque, when you come to the scripture. Um, Ferdy mentions how um, Erasmus treats scripture um, 
as words about God, um, while Luther comes to scripture as a, um, a word from God. Um, for Erasmus, uh, Ferdy says, quote, the task of theology is to construct a theory of God that is supposed to win us over by attractiveness. And it is the business of that theology to foster the preaching of the word of God, unquote. Um, the interpreter is basically there, Ferdy says, as the rescuer, the one to make sense out of the different disparate uh, uh, readings and texts from the scripture, you know, that there's, there, there's no internal clarity, right? There's no, um, there, there's no, there's no inner coherence. Sorry, James. Perspicuity. Yeah, the perspicuity. Um, it's a word I don't use a lot, but, <laughs> um, but there's no, um, but when Luther comes to the scripture, he says, you know, God is saying something here and it's already there. And it, it, and it speaks to, yes, scripture, of course, is different books, different authors, different emphases, different, you know, hu humans um, wrote as themselves while they were inspired, but um, the scripture, uh, it, it's, it's not for the interpreter to have to, um, to, it, it doesn't take an ex expert interpreter to have to synthesize it all for someone else. The scripture actually speaks to us. And that's what I believe that's the first time Luther actually introduces concepts of external and internal clarity. Um, you know, external clarity being that anyone can come to scripture and read it even on a uh, surface level and, and make a basic sense out of what it's trying to say. And internal clarity is, um, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit um, that we know God is speaking to us through it. And so it's really um, it fundamentally different positions that Luther and Erasmus come to in that. And, that, and, and Ferdy does a great job in that book. Again, it's called Captivation of the Will. Subtitle is Luther versus Erasmus on freedom and bondage. Um, I also wanted to add what attracts me to Ferdy is that he's so adamantly opposed to moralism. Right. Um, and I think moralism infects so much, uh, so much Christianity is susceptible to being infected by, and there's different kinds of it when you mix. Um, you know, when you mix bits of culture into with. with when you, when you kind of bring your cultural assumptions into theology, it can create moralism. When you bring in your political assumptions, whether from the left or the right, it can create moralism. And moralism is so unforgiving. Uh, it is so, um, it, grace gets sucked out of the Christian right. proclamation when you make it a moralistic message. Um, not that morals don't matter, but moralism is, is just a, a very black and white way of looking at at the world, um, generally speaking, any kind of moralism is, but, but Christian moralism is, is so often, no, like I don't have to speak more on that, but, um, and a lot of this goes, I remember Dr. Kilcrease, who Charlie and I both had for, um, who Charlie, I see Charlie's on the phone, he'll listen to this later though, so, but Charlie and I both had Dr. Kilcrease at ILT, and Dr. Kilcrease, uh, he, 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 like, like uh, James mentioned, um, one of, Gilcrease's critiques would be Ferdy's idea of the atonement, but he sees Ferdy as a mixed bag, and he says there's good things to take from him too. And he says a good way to understand Ferdy is Ferdy was raised in a highly piet had a highly pietistic upbringing and background in the in the strand of Lutheranism 
strand of Christianity he was raised in. And so a lot of his theology can be seen as a response to or even a reaction against that. He's very allergic to moralism. And so I think uh, very understandably, Ferdy gravitates towards um, that, that piece of Luther, which is a strong part of Luther. And I would argue, I mean, I would say he's a huge part of, of Luther. And so um, that's what Ferdy, so much of Ferdy's theology is, is uh, being more, is a, is a response to that. But I also think, um, you know, he was no antinomian. That is, he was not against, uh, he may have been wary of the third use, and I could see some rationale for that, why someone could be against that. But also, um, he wasn't like against the, the law in, in general. I think, um, you know, he, he was one of the dissenting theologians in the ELCA during the human sexuality debates. And I remember reading actually his, his arguments for why the church didn't go that direction. It was all law-based. It was based on uh, Torah. It was based on, and so, um, I mean, there he, you know, the law, uh, functions uh, and it is functioned in his work um but Boy, I mean, it, 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 actually preached at luther's seminary on the day that uh the elca passed its social statement on homosexuality that allowed uh, them to perform same-sex marriages and have openly gay clergy and uh a person who was there told me that dr ferdy walked into the pulpit read romans one and two and sat down. <laughs> well, and uh, when I heard that story, it made me think a lot more of him than I had before that. Well, and Ferdy, I think I think it's important to say too, as as Drew was just saying, that Ferdy Ferdy doesn't believe that the law goes away, or that the law is bad, or that the law is um, is is evil, or anything like that. Ferdy is very clear that the law is good. The law is given from God. The law remains until the new creation. Um, but that's where it stops. In the new creation, there is no need for law because there is no longer any need for accusation because we are with God forever. Um, and the promise is fulfilled. The hope is met. Um, so the law is always going to accuse the old Adam is always going to um, put to death the old Adam um, until you arrive at the new creation until you are resurrected from the dead. Mm -hmm. So anyone who argues that Ferdy is an antinomian is someone who's not read Ferdy um, or is um, an unfortunate disciple of Ferdy who takes his arguments farther than Ferdy would. And I mean, wouldn't by Ferdian logic, I could see how you wouldn't need a third use because doesn't the first use in itself um, lead to what you could call a third use in a way? I mean, well, if, the, the problem there is <laughs> that um, I'm, I mean, I this is a minor problem with Ferdy for me, but um, the problem with his approach to third use is not so much that he doesn't think that Luther had a third use. It's that he doesn't think Lutherans have a third use. 
and uh, our confessions are utterly uh, clear about this, mm -hmm. uh, and that we do have a third use of the law. Whether or not, you know, Luther taught a third use is open for debate. There's evidence on, on both sides. Um, I tend to think that he did, but that he just didn't emphasize it as frequently as he did the second use. Mm -hmm. um, but even if I were to grant a Luther scholar the argument that Luther didn't teach a third use, um, that would be irrelevant to Lutheran theology. And, uh, but for Ferdy, it, it was quite relevant to Lutheran theology um, because uh, he, he was, um, as Dr. Kilcrease would say, a Luther against the Lutherans kind of guy. Mm -hmm. um, he, would, he would use Luther to argue against something that is Lutheran that he, that he didn't care for. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really a minor point. Um, to be clear, I will absolutely. A lot of the stuff that James was talking about is stuff that I actually do appreciate about him. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I do, I do have, a, have a serious problem with the idea that Christ did not merit anything uh, by his obedience to the law. I think that's an error, but I understand why it's an error that Ferdy made. I mean, based on, on everything else. Right. And um, what were you going to say, James? I'm sorry. I was going to say the Luther against Lutherans um, mentality. I will absolutely use Thomas Cranmer against other Episcopalians and feel really good. About <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, there's pros and cons to, to that, that whole like using the the founder, you could say, against the followers. I mean, the danger, though, is that you don't want to make Luther the new pope or Cramner the new pope. Right. Uh, you know, what? why is one man better than the, the consensus of others who've thought stuff out? I mean, but I guess it's all like to use a you know, Protestant Reformation ethos, what is true to scripture? Right. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, I think I'm in that sense, Cramner does have a one-up on... <laughs> I'm from a confessional uh, tradition, and um, in our in the Lutheran confessional tradition, uh, it's the confessions that run the show, not not the the guy whose name shows up in them a lot. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, that's that's why Luther against the Lutherans doesn't work for me and doesn't work for Doctor Kilcrease, mm -hmm. because we're in this confessional tradition where. Uh, what the confessions teach is more important than what Luther taught. Yeah. Um, we don't think that they're in conflict, but, but if they were, the confessions win. Uh, that's, that's, that's the way in which it can become problematic. Sure. Um, I, I'm going to mention really fast um, my, um, my major problem with Fer Ferdy um, is his view of scripture. Uh, in 1964, he wrote an article called uh, Long Gospel as the Methodolo Methodological Principle of Theology. <clears throat> and uh, um, there's, um, there's three main points that he makes in this article, uh, which is foundational to his theology of scripture that I think are completely wrong. Um, one, the word of God is an event, not a text. Two, uh, the scriptures are, and three, 
there is no qualitative difference between um, a sermon and the Bible. Um, um, and, uh, and because he denies that qualitative difference between like a, pre, a sermon that Drew or James or I might preach um, and the text of scripture, uh, he, he argues that the only reason why we refer to the scriptures is because of their antiquity. They are closer to the source than we are. And so um, they get more things right than we do. Hmm. But they don't get everything right. And there's no qualitative difference between them and the sermon that I wrote yesterday that I'm going to preach on Sunday. And uh, this comes out of a, a tradition um, in the church body he grew up in that goes back uh, to the 20s and 30s. I mean, it's, it's, he didn't come up with any of these ideas, but he, he did um, do a fair bit of scholarly work um, in developing them. It looks like I'm not the only one who got a phone call during the podcast. I was um, <laughs> muted because my bishop called a few minutes ago, but oh. uh, I see James yeah. is talking now. Better, better pick that up. Um, so how much time that's, all, we, that's all I wanted to mention. We're halfway um, through. How much time do we have? Do you have? I have. I can, I can stay for maybe another half hour or so. Okay. We can wrap up in it that much. Um, so my theologian is Karl Barth. Um, actually, no, it's Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. I'm kidding. It's Karl Barth. Um, I meant to say that first, just to throw, I was going to throw Charlie and James off, but it, that was ruined because I messed it up and James is on the phone anyway, so it wouldn't have had any effect. So, uh, um, so uh, where to start with Bart? So James, you missed it. Um, he's off the phone now. For So my theologian is, is Friedrich Schleiermacher. All right, so the podcast is over. <laughs> well, first off, I would... The podcast would, uh, is over, and Drew is going to be brought up on charges by James. Uh, Schleiermacher is a fascinating thinker, as my theologian <laughs> Carl Bart would actually agree. Um, but no, um, it is Carl Bart. Bart... Um, where to start. So I first heard about, well, first heard about, I heard about Bart a while ago. So Bart's, um, he's definitely like one of the least obscure the theologian names um, for people that don't even, that have, have, you know, heard of theologians, but are not deeply read. They'll know the name Karl Bart likely, and maybe names like Paul Tillich. Um, Karl Barth, of course, is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest theologian, excuse me, of the 20th century. And, but I didn't seriously read any Barth or know Barth's Barth or his theology or his, his story until I took a class with Dr. Kilquis, who we've mentioned a few times already. Um, and I took it about two years ago, and that was the, the best class I think I can say I've ever had college, seminary, beyond. I mean, this is, of course, for my graduate, my doctoral work. Early on, I was still an SDM student. is before ILT started the doctoral program, and I transferred into that. But so uh, it, it was a really good class. And um, but not only because I learned about Bart, but I also, it was the first time I really learned about the story of modern theology. Um, 
the courses I got in seminary with church history courses gave some survey of that, but it really focused on earlier times, um, patristics, medieval and reformation more than I think it did modern. Interestingly, as we live in the modern era, or we, <laughs> people may debate that we may be postmodern, who knows, but um, so, but it was, this class was, and, and then I, I taken one class on 19th century theology, ILT, so I started to get my feet wet, at least in that part of modern theology. But through BART, through the BART course, I learned about just the further trajectory that 19th century theology took. Um, BART's one of these people that had his feet in kind of both worlds. He had his foot in the, um, in the world of 19th through early 20th century German liberal theology. Um, that was you could say it was birthed by Schleiermacher, but it's uh, there's many different currents that go on in that period. And um, Barr had his feet in, in one end in there because he was, his his formation and theological training was in like the 1890s, early 1900s. And then he had his other foot in the 20th century, particularly in the, po the, the post-World War One landscape where there was a, partly inaugurated by him a new theology and so which we'll get into but I like his, his early years are fascinating because like I said he was trained and studied under the uh the great uh 19th century theology kind of kind of the last chapter of 19th central German liberal theology which basically um it, it, Harnack Adolf von Harnack was part of that era but also the big two like the the big two guys were Ernst Trelch and Wilhelm Hermann um, which uh, those two theologians were kind of, um, you could say, Bart would have said that it was the dead end that 19th century theology came to. They were kind of the close, they were like the dusk of 19th century theology. Um, Herman and Trelch found themselves in opposing camps, um, that opposing camps that were both uh, descended from the Richelian school, Albert Richel, um, for our listeners, you can go to the episode we had Robert Roger Olson on. Roger Olson will fill in a lot more of this picture of 19th century theology, including ritual. But basically, Trelch is of this uh, history of religion school that he's part of, who, which sees um, that the true study of religion has to be through this a strictly historical scientific way of looking at how religions empirically have developed and um, their their history on this earth and that you know maybe we can derive some underlying principle under it but you don't you know you don't go to scripture for that you don't go to your church's teaching for that it is something that historians can can detect um so there's that um then there's herman who rejected that approach he was kind of the other and the other extreme that 19th century liberal theology uh came to and that Herman said, uh, history really doesn't matter because uh, when it comes to faith, faith is something transhistorical and can transcend history. And we shouldn't place, understandably, on one end, he would say, you can't, you can't really put your faith in the historical sciences because historical scholarship, the trends of, of what historians do changes. Uh, it's like shifting sand. But faith and what he meant by faith was the personal, um, how you were personally affected by the personality of Jesus Christ. 
Um, now, what does that even mean? Because where do you hear about Jesus? You hear about him in scripture. And, and Herman said, just like he rejected historical science as determining anything about faith, he also rejected historical writings as having a final say. <laughs> so he rejected the gospels. So it's um, this is all good background because Bart, um, Bar actually is a Hermanian in the beginning, but then he he starts to get disillusioned, especially when he sees that Herman and many and Adolf von Harnack and many of these 19th century German liberal theologians um, signed a manifesto um, endorsing uh, German militarism in 1914 uh, to go to war, and uh, for for Bart that was a disillusioning time, and he saw basically everything that he had been taught for him just came crumbling down i think he even put that in his own words and it was during that time that he began to to he was reading the book of romans and he wrote of course his famous commentary um on the book of romans and he did like he wrote like six editions maybe more and i have one i have a copy of it i couldn't even tell you if my cop what edition it is or it has like the prefaces to all the introductions he wrote or the prefaces it has a, all the prefaces he wrote to each edition. But anyways, it's, um, and in this commentary, this, and he's writing this amidst like the, having just seen what happened with Germany. Um, and he's Swiss, he's not German. Um, and so he kind of had, you know, some people say he just, he had some distance from really fully knowing what being German was about. And so that was, it was, it was it may have seemed more odd to him than it would have perhaps a german uh that they would want to go to war but basically bart said that um in his romans commentary he basically sees in paul's writing in the book of romans um an emphasis on the infinite gulf that there is between the divine god alone and us um at first, his commentary seems to paint a dark picture. Um, uh, I think it could be, I'm going to pull a quote from it that I think summarizes really his project in writing this commentary on Romans that he wrote. He says, quote, nothing human which desires to be more than a void and a deprivation, a possibility of signposts, more than the most trivial thing in the midst of the phenomena of this world survives, nothing which is not like everything else in this world, dust and ashes before God. So it's kind of a bleak picture that he paints of humanity and creation. Um, some commentators said that he uses kind of German expressionist type of writing in this, which I think is interesting um, because that was also a thing going on in the culture and the arts and in German films of the tens and twenties. And uh, his commentary paints this dark picture um, that it's that it's of the world in general and his purpose seems though, to connect to the world of Paul's day, um, the people in it, the fallenness of the world uh, today um, is the same fallenness of Paul, Paul's day. Uh, but on the other hand, he talks about God's faithfulness, faithfulness in it. Um, and his faithfulness is utterly unaffected by this world. And therefore, uh, that's kind of the bright picture we see um, that you know, the greatest and only hope for us is God's faithfulness towards us. And he does this interesting thing where he says, like, you know, this world, this fallen world, this empirical reality, this empirical reality, which is the subject, 
subject of historical science and all the these 19th century theologians um how you know the way they built theology was on something apart from church doctrine or scripture but based on just the um the the general sciences he said this empirical world um is is something so fallible um and he calls it this is it's like this world exists on a plane that is different from the plane that god exists on and this plane below is what bart calls so-called history or anti-history where he says quote unquote real history is the plane that god exists on and these two planes have intersected once and that is the in the cross event um, um the cross event being the summation of jesus's ministry for bar um it's basically that um these two planes intersected in the cross event and uh so it's it which i think is um kind of it's it's a book it's a hopeful book but also very um dark book that really just in bart writes kind of in a way similar to ferdy where he just kind of hammers his points i have a few other things to say about bart but any um what's what's y'all's experiences with with carl bart charlie and james well i've only read the one book that we read for dr kilcrease on schleiermacher mm. uh, and i enjoyed that book i thought his analysis was very good Mm -hmm. um, I've read a fair bit about Bart in uh, secondary literature, and that has given me, well, a mixed, um, a mixed view of him. Uh, I'm not a huge fan, uh, but I do think he's, he did do some good things, especially uh, when he was pushing back against Boltman. Uh, but I've, I've also got, uh, you know, got some concerns, but I honestly don't know enough about him uh, to say uh, more than I have, though I do have another one of his books that I'll, I'll probably dig into sometime soon. Um, Which one? The first, the first volume on the doctrine of the word from his dogmatics. Ah, yeah. And again, the dogmatics, I mean, if, if there's anything that people know about Carl Bart. It's that he wrote this huge multi-volume dogmatics, and um, that he was a he protested against Nazi Germany, which is kind of the ironic part of me bringing bringing him as my as my other theologian. For anyone who's listened to our last episode, the last person that was on my list was someone who, at least initially, supported uh, the Nazi regime, and Bart did not. And Bart and this guy, Paul Althaus, actually came into a famous debate in the early 30s on it. I would say, and listeners can go to that episode, get the, the more the fuller details on it, but I would say it was more of a theological debate, even though they had their respective politics, but it was really over the question of uh, natural theology or, or, or revelation apart from the Christ event, if, if anyone can have a revelation or knowledge of God apart from Christ. Um, Barton Altos were on two separate sides on that. But anyways, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that's not been said so far, at least so far as I can tell, unless you said it while I was on the phone, I apologize for that. I was waiting on a phone You're call, fine. a credit card. I got canceled. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so mm -hmm. one of the things that I, um, that I've heard 
I, like Charlie, have not read much Bart. Um, but one of the things that I've heard is that Bart opines that Christ is the elect one. Yes. That he is the one who is elect. And while that could be read in a Lutheran way or in a, uh, in a way that um, someone like Luther might um, appreciate, um, I think that that could perhaps arrive, uh, that could perhaps arrive at the right conclusion through a wrong way of thinking, because I think that devalues baptism, which I believe is the electing moment where God chooses you and makes you a member of his family, makes you a member of his house. Um, and if it is simply Christ is the elect one, then um, sure he can bequeath to you um, his election in effect. But I think that that, um, like I said, I think that devalues baptism. Well, like you said, it can be read in a, Lutheran way. I would, uh, I'd recommend listeners to go to um, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and, and, and Paul Hinlicky do a podcast called Queen of the Sciences. And they did an episode on Bart where they talk about Bart's strange relationship with Lutheran Lutheranism. Cause on some points um, he was closer to Luther than Bart being from the reformed tradition, I should add, uh, it gives some context here was closer to Luther than a lot of Lutheran theologians, including Boltmann and some of the dialectical theologians he parted ways with, which I can get into in a moment. But in um, other ways, he's um, very much seen as against anti-Lutheran because he had debates with all the his sparring partners were were uh, Lutheran. So it's 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 a he isn't strange. But the whole uh, you know when I read, I remember reading through Bart's. Um, theology of election and it was it's hard to follow um because it, it's you really wonder where he's arriving to but from what i gathered from it from some of the good summaries is partly what you've already spoken to james but also uh his idea of election is uh not uh it, he's trying to get away his motivation is that he sees double predestination as an unfortunate thing that's uh happened in his own tradition being the reformed tradition and i've heard it said that he's actually closer to luther and that he he basically um that now he's 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 kind of come across he, the charges of being a universalist but also some that said actually he's he he's close to a position luther would have of that um of a un, gosh unlimited atonement that um all you know uh but that that um christ's death has saved all not just the elect and so um it's however there is kind of there's the response involved there's the um the bap you know and not i'm not, not trying to get into decision theology but right you know it's like we can reject that um um christ's work for uh, not work but his death for and we we can reject faith but that uh it is open for all to come to but um i don't know that's yeah <clears throat> but uh interestingly so um bart's commentary of the romans um it was, there was a theologian who described it as a bombshell 
dropped like a bombshell in the theologian's playground. Uh, it was actually, I can't think of his name, but he was a Catholic theologian who said this. And he, it really angered the theological establishment. Um, a lot of them were still the people, the, the, big, the big guys in the German universities who signed on to, for World War I to happen. And they were still, you know, they were still the leading theologians, but, you know, they, they were beginning to wane and they were, they were angry at uh, the commentary and um, basically charged Bart with returning to pre-modern ways of exegeting. And Bart said, uh, okay, well, maybe uh, Calvin's way of exegeting scripture or Luther's way of exegeting scripture uh, was a better way because um, while he, Bart, fully embraced historical criticism and, and didn't and denied that he was a biblicist and returning to a pre-modern way. These are all things that, that he was accused of. He said at least that Luther and Calvin were interested in the actual subject matter of scripture. They were interested in penetrating to the heart the what Paul was actually saying in Romans. He said um, a lot of biblical scholarship and their methods and their tools, all they're so preoccupied with historical questions of the text and identifying um, you know, what Hellenistic um, thing is happening here and what Jewish thing is happening here. It's almost like they see these as syncretic products of different things that are trapped in, in the, their historical moment. Um, and Bart really was looking for a timelessness, a trans-historical trans um, heart of what is conveyed to us through scripture. Um, so, I mean, Bart's theology, the word was not um, by any means what you call biblicist or a narratist. Um, I've, he, he took a position that scriptures are the, um, basically the, the witnesses of, I guess he would have a, he would have kind of a similar view as Ferdy, uh, as far as his word theology goes. Um, but yeah, uh, I would, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I do want to share one more thing thing um that our our reno from first things wrote a uh, article on bart that i want to um recommend for our listeners to to read um it, uh he wrote it was he reno is the editor-in-chief of first things and he wrote an article on bart saying um basically our reno our reno is a he actually was episcopalian at one point uh, some time ago but became a Catholic uh, years ago, but he still appreciates um, certain leading Protestant theologians, including Bart. And he said that, quote, Bart cured me of metaphysical or historical worries about the accessibility of God to modern man. If one believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnate son of God, then one believes in the power of God to overcome all distances, whether framed in terms of the infinite and the finite or in terms of or in terms of first century in the 20th, Bart showed that it is silly to worry that the complexities of authorship, editing, and canonization of the Old and New Testament might somehow impede the power of the Bible to reveal Christ, unquote. Um, and that's uh, something I got too from Bart as I, as I studied him, not just his works, but secondary works on him. And when I was in the class and I learned about him, I, I appreciated so much of... Um, that kind of objectivity, which is a big motif. Um, George Hunsinger, who's a Bart scholar, would say this is one of the many themes you find in Bart. Um, he has a list of them. I was going to like go through them, but we don't really have time. But basically, uh, uh, this uh, 
that God actually speaks to us outside of yourself. Um, and that, you know, we're not trapped mulling around inwardly by trying to make meaning out of something. Um, I think so much of that is in our spiritual culture on a larger scale, but I see a lot of it in, uh, well, I don't want to even be, I don't even want to be critical of mainline denominations. You're seeing that you see this in Catholicism and, and in evangelical Christianity as well. Um, but there's, uh, you know, Bart really reinforces the sense because he saw so much, um, so much in, in the theology he was raised in, so much of this idea that um, God speaks to us through experience rather than um, God speaks to us through, um, through something outside of ourselves, which is scripture. It's not something we arrive to in our inward wrestling. Um, so that, that was, uh, I guess, a comfort because it's just like it, it's sometimes you need, you know, our lives are full of doubt and second guessing on so many things, especially deep matters. And it's just a reminder that uh, about the reality of God, um, which despite whatever goes on in this world um, is still um, nevertheless is persists and is a constant. So yeah, there's so much I could say on Mark, but that's kind of my, yeah. <clears throat> Lots of silence there. Did I miss a question? No, <laughs> but uh, I am done. <laughs> so. I, okay, well, I'll, I'll move on then. Um, my last uh, theologian is the Reverend Dr. David P. Meyer, who I am close to 100% sure that no one listening to the podcast will have heard of. Um, You're such a hipster, Charlie. He taught at uh, Concordia University in Seward, Nebraska. Um, he was a, a mentor of mine uh, in both theology and philosophy. Every philosophy course that I ever took until I entered my PhD program, I took from Dr. Meyer. And while I was at Concordia Seward, both times I was at Concordia Seward, I, I did a Bachelor of Arts there. And then I later went back to do teaching certification and both of those times I worked for Dr. Meyer um, as a grader, and uh, it, was, um, it was a lot of fun to work with him. Uh, but the reason I picked him is that I, I, was, I was just racking my mind today, and I was thinking, who, who can I pick? Because, you know, picking a favorite theologian is like picking a favorite sacrament. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so I thought, well, here is a guy who has had significant influence on me now for over 30 years. And, uh, and the reason why Dr. Meyer has been uh, such a huge influence to me is one, he was just an outstanding teacher. Uh, I mean, he, I mean, there is nothing you, if you, if you Google him, you won't find much. Um, as far as I know, he has one published article that he wrote after he retired. 
uh, on how to teach the theology of the Trinity. And I, I, I took a glance at it today. And uh, to my great joy, on the very first page, he uses symbolic logic to illustrate his point. And I didn't know there was anybody else in the Missouri Synod who, who thought about the Trinity in terms of symbolic logic. And it was a great joy to see that one of my favorite teachers did it. Um, but uh, I had him on uh, my first semester of college for a class called uh, The Theology and Literature of the New Testament. And uh, when we started talking about canon, he assigned us to read an article that he had translated from the German that was written in 1856 by C.F.W. Walther. Uh, and the article was about whether or not a person would be a heretic if they denied the canonicity of Revelation. And uh, Walther went through all of the evidence from older Lutheran theologians and answered the question, no, they would not. And so Dr. Meyer was the first person to introduce me to the idea that Lutherans have an open canon and that there are seven books of the New Testament that uh, we're not sure about. And uh, he opened that whole world to me. Um, it's probably the most influential article on theology that I read um, during college and seminary. And I read it, I think, my second week of college. And, uh, and, it's, and uh, the guy that the article was about, uh, Carl August Wilhelm Rebelin, is going to be the subject of my doctoral dissertation. So there's really nobody who has had a greater influence on my academic interests uh, than Dr. Meyer. And he, I mean, he actually translated this article. Um, I wish I could get a copy of his translation. I can't find my copy that I made when I was in college. And uh, the library there doesn't have it anymore. And um, Dr. Meyer has, um, I've heard that he has some dementia. Um, and so talking to him about it really isn't an option anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but I, uh, you know, he's not, sadly, he's not a theologian that in a hundred years, very many people will remember. Mm -hmm. um, because he didn't write very much. He just, he taught two or three generations of Lutheran pastors and teachers uh, in a very quiet and um, kind and wonderful way. Um, and so we will remember him. Um, but after we're gone, you know, his legacy will probably in, in most ways be over, but um, he's just a guy that I dearly love. And, uh, and I wanted to include him um, I'll close just by giving uh, one anecdote. Um, Dr. Meyer um, loved uh, to at least be known as a person who drank coffee, but I never saw him drink it. Um, he would come into class every day with a thermos and a coffee cup. And at the beginning of class, he would pour coffee from the thermos into the coffee cup. We would actually see him do this. And he had his coffee cup in one hand and his chalk in the other hand. And he'd be 
flailing around on the chalkboard the whole uh, the whole time, and he'd have this coffee in his coffee cup, and every now and then you'd think that he was about to take a sip, but then the next idea would come to mind, and then he would he would fling the coffee cup in the other direction and keep writing, but he never spilled any. Um, it, it was like it was a magic coffee cup. Um, hmm. And uh, it, he was a bit eccentric, he was, um, but he was always filled with joy. Um, I sent a picture to Drew and James uh, before the podcast today that shows him holding uh, like a, it looks like a baby alligator or something. And he has this look of pure joy on his face. And that is the look that he almost always um, had on his face. <laughs> and the other thing that he would do is at the beginning of every class, he would hold up his Bible. And I don't know if I ever saw him hold up the same Bible at the beginning of class, because what he would say is he'd say, you know, don't use an expensive Bible for this class. And then he would give all the students directions uh, to this thrift store downtown, in downtown Seward on the square. And you say, go in there, you know, find a Bible that is a decent translation that you can get for two or three dollars. And then, you know, get that one. And then whatever notes you've taken in your old Bibles, just transfer those into your new Bible and add, you know, as you're going, as you're reading through, through your Bible again. And then, you know, in a, in a year or two, when you wear that one out, and you, you just do the same thing again. Um, and he said, you do not destroy the word of God by wearing out your Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he really believed that because he was wearing them out all the time. Mm. Uh, he, he was just a wonderful, um, kind, godly man who who just kind of did the, the hard work of teaching basic theology to undergraduates. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, he'll always have a, a very special place in my heart and in my dissertation. <laughs> yeah. It's um, when you mentioned the whole, uh, the seven disputed letters of the new testament that is a very interesting i mean it goes back to eusebius i know you've brought that up on the show before but um you know it, for a lot of christians that would seem almost uh you know offensive the idea that seven of the 27 books in the new testament may or may not be canonical but there is some historical precedence to the dispute disputes on it and um yeah, listeners, are, I did an episode on Luther and the Book of Revelation, and uh, that that in itself is a fascinating, um, fascinating history. It's in our so one of our previous episodes, but uh, yeah. Um, well, guys, thank you. Uh, I don't know about you. I'm just I'm I'm at the point, I'm done talking. I don't want to talk about theologians for a while. And so, for our listeners, our next series. I don't know when we'll start. I'm thinking maybe June. We'll do our first one, hopefully. Uh, Stephen is joining us. So the, all four Doth Protest hosts, co-hosts are going to be together for the first time. And definitely not the last. We're going to be doing our a series on hymns, our top five favorite hymns. And so 20 hymns you, our listeners will get all together. Maybe some of them are hymns that you are some of your favorites as well. Um, Again, but, you're asking us to pick a favorite sacrament. It's just mean. Uh, but there's only... 
a couple sacraments. So it's like, <laughs> I guess if you want to include the sacramental rites, and, I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't, yeah, that's, I don't know. I mean, there are clearly, there's clearly, there's no bad sacrament. There is bad church music. So I don't know if that's a good analogy. There is. <laughs> so, look in the Episcopal hymnal at the hymn. Look there, the Christ, our brother comes. It is God awful. Oh my God. It's unsingable. Um, it's unsingable. Christ, our brother comes. I uh, I don't know about the hymn, but I don't know. Yeah. If is that in the hymnal 1982? It is. Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah. I have uh, that hymnal. Yeah. It's a, Can I mention an honorable mention theologian? Honorable mentions. Oh gosh. Uh, y'all can go first. I mean, it'll be brief and I have to think of one. So I, uh, y'all go first. I, you don't have to, but this, this, it was really a toss up between Ferdy, um, and, and, and this guy, I said Ferdy because I wanted to see Charlie squirm, but Ferdy, uh, uh Ferdy slightly, uh, edged out, um, Fitzsimmons Allison, who's an Episcopal Bishop from the diocese of South Carolina, Oxford educated theologian, he too is deeply allergic to moralism. He wrote an entire book about it. Um, he's also written um, the book called The Cruelty of Heresy, which um, says basically all of the heresies today are just the ancient heresies reiterated in a new way. Um, and that they all really can boil down to, if I remember correctly, either Gnosticism or Docetism or something like that. Mm, yeah. um, or Ebionitism and and um, and uh, and Gnosticism or something like that. The focusing too much on the humanity, focusing too much on the divinity, in effect. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but yeah, Fitz Allison would be would be my sixth if we were continuing. But now that we're dispensing with theologians in general, we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> nice. Um, I'll think I can't even think I just somebody like where, where to pick you know it's like Charlie said it is like picking a favorite sacrament when it comes to theologians though there are a lot of bad theologians though too I'll give a shout out to another one of my <laughs> Concordia Seward profs uh Greg Mack uh M-E-C-H um he was the chaplain at Seward when I was there um we became very very close and uh he was the first person uh, to teach me uh, the joys of the liturgy and all of the theology that 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 stands behind it. Uh, um, probably half of what I know and ninety percent about what I love about the liturgy I learned from him. Yeah, and he learned it from Nagel, but he was. He was the first guy that I ever encountered who who had something to say about it. Greg yeah. Mack. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there's one guy I like a lot. He's German, and I don't even remember his name. That's my it's my hipster choice because you wouldn't even uh, none of you would have heard of him. Guarantee you that. Um, I don't even have a book by him. I can't even think of his name. <laughs> I'll bring it up at the start of our next episode. What did he write about? He wrote about uh he just wrote he was not he was one of those he wrote he was a historical theologian and a philosopher and he just wrote really good um he just wrote really fascinating articles that I've had to like wrestle through and translate roughly or work with my tutor on and it's helped me with a couple different 
papers in my coursework. Um, he was, um, oh, and he died in the late 1980s. And I am totally drawing a blank on his name. Um, I guess he'd be an honorable mention, but there's like a handful I could throw in, but um, and I can't think of his name. I'll think of it when I, when I stop recording. That's when I'll think of his name. So, uh, all right. So everyone, uh, listeners, uh, tune in to our next episode. Um, actually, no, it won't be our next one, but uh, with the next time we are together again, it'll be our hymns. So, um, and we have some exciting episodes lined up in the summer that you'll see as they, as they happen. So God bless. Hi, this is Drew, and I'm offering uh, here kind of a postscript, if you will, of the episode that you just listened to. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it and are looking forward to the next series, which will be on our favorite hymns. Um, The theologian that I could not think of the name of when we were talking about our um, honorable mentions, or (laughs) I guess six theologians at the end, was uh, Hans Joachim Berkner, who I guess was not really a theologian, and I don't know what his own theology may have even been. I have not read deeply enough on it. For all I know, he may not even been a... Well, I do know he served as a pastor in Germany, so I know he did have a theology of sorts, and I don't know whether it would be something I would be uh, fully on board with or not, but I just admire his scholarship. Again, his name was Hans Joachim Berkner. He did a lot in getting the... um, uh, Schleiermacher uh, archive uh, started in the mid-70s, and he did a lot of also research on uh, German, modern German theologians such as Emanuel Hirsch, um, Richard Roth, um, Dilthi, Dilthi, I always mispronounce his name, uh, as well as just a lot of like modern uh, German theology, which uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, wake of Bartianism, kind of got uh, put on a back shelf and um, it was disorganized and um, not, you know, not comprehensively or systematically put together um, or or presented anyways. And so that's why I like Berkner, because he's been indispensable and valuable in a lot of my studies and research in my own areas, not because I necessarily endorse whatever his theology may have been. I think he was more of a historian and a historical theologian who uh, engaged uh, the material in seeing what others said and thought and not necessarily, um, not like a lot of the theologians we discussed, which uh, really gave their own takes on things uh, and and how they understood things, right? So, uh, but on an, on, honestly, I don't even know if he would have if, if it could have been any other day, maybe I would have brought someone else up as my sixth or honorable mention, just because there's so many great theologians. And as we, as you continue to listen to this podcast, I hope you uh, all uh, can, can really get a big picture of just how many theologians there have been uh, in, in, in our, the history of the church. And of course, we've discussed a lot of them on on not only this theologian series, but just on a lot of our episodes uh, in general. So thank you for listening. Our next uh, episode coming up is going to be another discussion with Daniel Peterson on some recent work, a recent article that he wrote on um, on metaphysical concepts of God. And so um, and um, so we look forward to that discussion um, as well. And and I just recently confirmed with. Uh, an author, Stephen Chester, of the book Reading Paul with the Reformers, 
he is going to join James and I in, and uh, possibly Charlie too, I have to confirm with him, in July. Uh, there are some other episodes, but I don't want to give too much away, but we are looking forward to those, those couple episodes, especially that second person I mentioned, Stephen Chester, has done a lot of he is a uh, scholar of the Reformation and of the Reformers, Luther and John Calvin. And he's also engaged um, biblical scholar trends, uh, especially uh, the major interpretations of Paul and Paul's teaching of justification. And in his recent book, uh, Reading Paul with the Reformers, he tries to see um, um, basically where uh, what we can appreciate from the so-called new perspective on Paul, but also still appreciate what the reformer said about Paul and how why that uh, central teaching of justification from Paul's letters uh, that were so influential on Luther and John Calvin um, in their own day, uh, why we can really still appreciate Luther and Calvin's insights on on. Uh, justification and on and on the Pauline Pauline literature and so um and why uh the, the new perspective um made us forget uh for a little while at least on in the scholarly world what uh treasure trove we have in the writings of Luther and Calvin um on that matter and in ways that we that they need to be read more closely and so anyways uh, God bless, and we will thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time.